Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Um, With the new year, we are in a sermon series called Seven Letters to the Church. We're looking at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, where Jesus addresses seven churches, and he addresses them individually. Each of these churches has a different context, they experience different challenges, and Jesus has a custom message for each one of them. And we believe that Jesus has a message for his church today as well, because he cares for his church. He's walking with his church. He's always shaping and forming his church. And so today we're going to look at the third letter in the book of Revelation, which is Jesus's message to the church in a city called Pergamum. Uh, And I believe that this message to the church at Pergamum has some pretty fitting words for us today in our modern context. So let me show you a picture of Pergamum. Pergamum is an ancient city stunningly perched on a thousand foot hill overlooking the Aegean Sea in what is now Turkey. And when John wrote the book of Revelation, Pergamum had a population of about 100,000 people. It boasted the steepest amphitheater in the ancient world, and it enjoyed an unusually large library of about 200,000 parchment scrolls. In fact, parchment is speculated to have been invented in Pergamum. So it was a place of commerce and culture, but Pergamum was not a particularly hospitable place if you were a Christ follower. And we're about to see why. Uh, Let's read the first two uh, verses of this letter, the letter to Pergamum. Starting with verse 12. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. So let's stop there. Jesus uses some pretty strong language when he talks about the city of Pergamum. He calls it the place where Satan has his throne. What's up with that? Well, the truth is that no one knows precisely what this refers to. It may have referred to the fact that there was no small amount of pagan worship going on here. Pergamum was kind of a who's who when it came to temples devoted to Greek gods. High up on the mount was the Temple of Zeus, and then there was the Temple of Dionysus, and the Temple of Demeter, and the Temple of Athena, and so on and so forth. Some scholars think that Satan's throne was a reference to the worship of the god Asclepion. Asclepion uh, was known as a healing god and had a symbol uh, that was a serpent. And for Christians, that would have been a pretty big red flag. Um, Asclepion um, had a, there's a temple uh, there in, in Pergamon to Asclepion, and, and people in need of healing would come to Pergamum to sleep in a dark room in this temple with snakes, actually. Uh, and then they would tell the priest what they dreamed, and the, and the priest would prescribe an antidote, and um, that, that's how the cult of Asclepion worked. So in some ways, this seems like an obvious explanation for the reference to Pergamum as Satan's throne. 
But there's one more explanation, and this is the one that scholars tend to lean on the heaviest, and which I think we would do well to um, take note of. Pergamon was the first city in the Asian part of the Roman Empire that was given permission by the Roman Empire to build a temple dedicated to the worship of the emperor. You see, the emperor was seen as divine, as Adam explained last week. And Pergamum became kind of a capital for emperor worship, an official center for the imperial cults. As Adam also explained last week, um, as part of emperor worship, you would be required to say that the emperor is lord or dominus. Dominus was a political title that referred to the emperor's office and position, and it was wrapped up with divinity. So when Christians confessed instead that Jesus is Dominus, that Jesus is Lord, you know, they weren't just expressing a personal religious conviction like we would be doing today if we said Jesus is Lord. They were actually making a very strong political statement, and not just a, a strong political statement, but a subversive political statement. By saying Jesus is Lord, they were saying that the emperor is decidedly not Lord. Talk about being unpatriotic. You know, you'd really stand out if you were a faithful Christ follower in first century Pergamum. But perhaps worse than standing out, you risked becoming disenfranchised. You might lose favor with your employer. Or if you own a business, you might lose patrons. You might fall out of favor with the state. Your status, your privilege might be on the line. So as you can imagine, Pergamum was a pretty difficult place to live if you followed Christ. So what was Christ's message to the church in Pergamum? Well, in these verses, we see Jesus celebrating their steadfast faith in the midst of a pretty toxic intense environment. He wants them to know that he sees where they live and what they're up against, how hard and lonely and dangerous it has been to be a Christ follower in their city. Jesus acknowledges that they've remained loyal to him even when they've lost their fellow Christ follower Antipas as a martyr. History suggests that Antipas might have been a bishop, if, we, uh, if this was the case, um, you can imagine how discouraging, even terrifying, this would have been for the Christian community to see him killed. And yet, they remained steadfast in their commitment to following Jesus. So when Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, I see where you live, this is a reminder to us that he sees where we live and the unique challenges that face each one of us in our moment and in our place and time, even if they're very different challenges than the ones faced by the church in Pergamum. I'm so thankful that we're not facing persecution like the believers in Pergamum. But we each navigate our own hurdles and hardships as we seek to live out a faith, uh, a faith in love, um, as we face perhaps being misunderstood, or even from time to time as we find ourselves having to put something on the line for Jesus. Jesus sees your difficulties and your fears and the risks that you take and the sacrifices that you make for him. You know, there's something else really important that Jesus is saying here. 
He's reminding the church at Pergamum that though they've watched one of their own be executed for the faith, it's not actually the state, the empire, who holds the ultimate power over life and death. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who holds the ultimate power over life and death. And Jesus communicates this really vividly in this letter by an image that he uses to describe himself. It's the image of one who holds a double-edged sword. But this sword isn't just any sword. It's the very word of God. The book of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, in Roman society, there was an important official called the proconsul. And the proconsul held the power to execute at will. And this power, it was known as um, Ius Gladi, forgive my Latin, (laughs) but Ius Gladi meant the power of the sword. The proconsul had the power of the sword. When the proconsul walked through the streets of a city in the Roman Empire, he would be preceded by a bodyguard called a lictor, a bodyguard or a contingent of bodyguards who would hold an axe with a blade that was showing. And that was a symbol of that power that the proconsul had, the power of the sword. And you can imagine that this would have been really a chilling sight for anyone, especially the Christ followers of Pergamum. So when Jesus addresses himself to the church at Pergamum as one who holds a double-edged sword, he's reminding them that though the proconsul may hold the power to shed blood, it is not the proconsul who holds the power over life and death. The ultimate power over life and death belongs to Christ and Christ alone. So Jesus wants to encourage the believers of Pergamum but he also has a word of warning for them. So let's read the next three verses, starting with verse 14. Jesus says, But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, the Pergamum church has been steadfast in the very real face of persecution, but there's a problem. You see, probably some of the Pergamum Christ followers were tired of standing out, tired of being misunderstood, tired of being lonely, of being ostracized. Perhaps they were tired of losing business or status or privilege or maybe tired of being in danger. They were tired of having their lives on the line. And so a number of believers who were part of the church at Pergamum began to follow a false teaching, which is that it was okay to worship Jesus and the Greek gods worship Jesus and Caesar. Verse 14 says, You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. What's this all about? 
Well, Balaam is an Old Testament character who serves as a prototype of false teachers who lead believers into compromise with worldly ideologies. And you can read about this in Numbers 25 and Numbers 31. I'm going to give you the three-sentence version of that story. Are you ready? The Moabite king, Balak, he wants to defeat the Israelites passing through his territory. And so he goes to a diviner, a kind of prophet for rent named Balaam. And he hires Balaam to curse Israel, to curse the Israelites, so that they'll experience defeat at the hands of the Moabites. But Balaam doesn't end up cursing Israel. Instead, he ends up doing something even more insidious. He incites Moabite women to seduce Israelite men who proceed to consort with them. And this leads to the Moabite men rendering sacrifices to Moabite gods. And eventually this ends up being really to the downfall of many in Israel. So essentially, Jesus is saying to his followers at Pergamum that there's a kind of spiritual prostitution taking place among them. Some in the body of believers say they follow a Christ, but they are unashamedly participating in the toxic pagan worship of false gods in their society. And it's not a coincidence that the Old Testament story here talks about the Israelites eating food offered to idols and committing sexual sin, since worship at the Roman temples of Pergamum would have included the same thing. So in this letter, Jesus confronts the spiritual prostitution. He's basically saying that the members of the church who are prostituting themselves to other gods have a choice. They can choose truth now, or they can be confronted with truth later. If they wait till they're confronted with truth, that means being confronted by the sword of Christ's word. Now, as I see it, this is not about Jesus punishing people or destroying people. Ultimately, it's about redeeming people. That is the work of Christ and the work of his word. But you see, in order to redeem those who have turned to other gods, Jesus needs to slay that which is false in their lives. And for those believers who have clung to false gods, that's not going to be a painless thing. Well, I want to stop here for, for a moment and shift gears. This has been a pretty intense passage of scripture to look at. And on top of that, I've given you a ton of history to digest. Um, if you want to move to Turkey after the pandemic and give historical walking tours at Pergamum, you are already half trained. You're off to a good start. So now that we have a pretty good sense of what this passage is, is talking about, I want us to ask the question, what does all of this have to do with us? You know, on the one hand, I think this letter can feel very distant from our world today. We're not being pressured to burn incense to our leaders or, or call them Lord or show up at temples to please pagan gods. But I wonder if this passage is actually not so distant from our reality. Over the past few weeks, as I've been processing the events in Washington, especially on January 6th, I've experienced a, a broad range of emotions, emotions, as I'm sure many of you have. But I keep falling back to this particular emotion and landing there. It may not be the emotion that you come back to, but it's the one that I keep coming back to, and, and that's sadness. I find that I'm lamenting. And here's what I'm lamenting. 
I'm lamenting many things, but I'm, I'm lamenting the reality that many who were involved in the breaching of the Capitol, the theft and vandalizing of property, the terrorizing of lawmakers and Capitol staff, the spilling of blood, and the attempted overthrowing of, of a democratic election, I'm lamenting that some and perhaps many of these people did all of these things in the name of Christ. Honestly, I'm really confused about that, and I'm really angry about that, but mostly I'm feeling deeply sad about that. And here's why. I'm feeling deeply sad about that because this means that there are those who identify as Christians but whose religion really has become anger, whose religion has really become hatred, and whose religion has made them willing to inflict harm. I'm sad because what I see here is clear unfamiliarity with the Christ of the scriptures who, who taught us to love our neighbor, to pray for our enemy, to feed the hungry and care for the sick and put away the sword, and to prefer others sacrificially above ourselves. Essentially, I'm sad because I see people wearing the name of Christ but worshiping other gods, the gods of power, of personality, of political party or political ideology, and quite frankly, the god of empire, the god of nation. There's a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, Pastor Daryl Ford of Icon Community Church, who said something in a sermon this past week that profoundly affected me. It stopped me in my tracks when I heard it. He said, what we saw on Wednesday was a form of worship, the worship of a completely false god, a god of Christian nationalism. Scripture tells us that when we follow Christ, we are being formed into the image of Christ. I think it's true that who or what we worship, we become like. By God's grace at work in, in our lives, the follower of Christ becomes kinder over time, gentler, more peace-filled, more patient, more self-controlled, more loving, more joyful, more self-sacrificial. Ultimately, the mark of Christ on a person, it's not the sign they carry, it's not the t-shirt they wear, and it's not even the name of Christ on their lips. It's a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. You know, as I speak these words, I feel convicted personally that I need to search my own heart. Am, am I living a cruciform life? Or am I putting my trust in other gods, like the gods of security, expediency, the god of privilege, perhaps? Am I willing to choose kindness even when it costs me? Am I willing to be wounded rather than to wound? Am I willing to be a voice for the vulnerable? When I disagree, can I engage with gentleness? And at the same time, Am I willing to speak truth to power in love? For the sake of, of, of others, am I willing to name false worship when I see it? To make the distinction between the Christian t-shirt and the cruciform life? 
You know, I also need to ask myself, as I believe the church needs to be asking itself, have I in any way conflated Christ with a political agenda or a political personality or any personality or any other thing? Do I inadvertently worship nation or empire in any way? Do I covet the proconsul's Ius Gladi, his power of the sword, or do I trust in the power of the one whose word is a double-edged sword, who alone holds the power over life and death? As we close this morning, let's look at the promise that Jesus gives to his followers in Pergamum uh, for those who remain faithful to him. Verse 17. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. What is the manna hidden away in heaven? Well, this is a reference to God's miraculous provisioning of the Israelites in the wilderness in the Old Testament. And it's a picture of his miraculous provisioning for our every need, physical and spiritual. And in a kind of mystical way, I think it's also a picture of Christ himself giving us himself the gift of who he is to meet every need. He is the bread of heaven, broken for the salvation of all who are willing to receive. And what is the white stone? Well, in ancient Rome, a tessera was a small piece of wood, bone, or stone that served a number of purposes, including as a ticket to the Roman games. If someone was hosting a large banquet, they would issue one of these tessera um, as an entitlement to entrance to the feast. Now, this may or may not have been what Jesus is referring to when he, when he uses this um, uh, white stone as an illustration. There are many possible uh, references that he's making to uh, Roman culture. Um, but I think this stone given to those invited to a feast is a beautiful illustration of the fact that Jesus invites us to be an honored guest at his feast, the feast of eternal life with him. And at this feast, we will find ourselves with a new name, a name given to us by the one who created us, who knows us beyond anyone else's knowledge of who we are, and who knows what we have been through in our lives, what risks we have taken, what we have put on the line, what challenges we have faced, and what sacrifices we have made. He is the one who knows us better than we ourselves know us. He's the one in whom our salvation and our identity is and will be complete. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you hold the power of life and death in your hands. We thank you that as you saw the church in Pergamum, you see us and you know us and you know what we face. You know the challenges in our society that we are living in and navigating that are difficult and complex 
and confusing and that raise all kinds of emotions and responses in us. We pray, Lord, that we would have the strength and grace to respond in love and in the power of your grace, the power of your spirit, the power of who you are, the one who redeems. Oh, Lord, may you help us to respond to our world redemptively and to be ambassadors of your redemption in everything that we say and everything that we do. Go before us. Go before us and behind us. Shield us with your love and lead us in your way. And we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com.